This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley, and I'm honored to welcome as our guest on the program today, Fox News contributor, the journalist, the activist, Juan Williams. He has a new book out. The book is called, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Trump's War on Civil Rights. It was just released this week, September 25th. You may not know this, but the year that Juan Williams was born was the year that the Supreme Court outlawed racially segregated schools in the landmark Brown versus Board of Education decision. And as Juan Williams grew up, he witnessed an incredible shift in American society as the movement took shape and activists succeeded in winning important advancement changes in the laws, everything from voting rights to equality in education to protection from discrimination in housing and employment. So it should come as no surprise that Mr. Williams, and we'll let him tell us this, that he is, uh, the note I have says appalled, we'll let him choose his words, with the current administration and tends to take them to task in this new book. Juan Williams, welcome to Perspectives. What a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And uh, Perspectives, thank you for having me on. So how are your friends at the Fox News Channel taking the release of your new book? Well, highly critical in some cases, but, you know, I think this is typical of my relationship with my employer. Um, they tend to be to lean conservative, and we have lots of strong pro-Trump voices, Sean Hannity, for example, at Fox. And so for the most part, they're pretty excited that I've written the book, but they disagree with it. But they don't shut me down, which is, you know, for me, I really appreciate that, that they're willing to have the conversation. Uh, they're willing to even, you know, engage and not just have a conversation, but to tell me I'm wrong where they think I'm wrong, and then I fire back and tell them where I think they're wrong. So, everybody, Juan Williams also writes for a number of newspapers, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. He's been published in many magazines, including Time and the Atlantic Monthly. He was a senior news analyst at NPR. Uh, and, of course, he's an author. He wrote Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years, 1954 to 1965, a companion to the documentary series of the same name about the civil rights movement. He wrote Thurgood Marshall, American Revolutionary in 2000, which was a biography of the first African-American to sit and serve on the Supreme Court of the United States. And he also wrote something called Enough back in 2006, a book that was inspired by Bill Cosby's speech at the NAACP gala and deals with his critique of black leaders in America. As he put it then, the culture of failure. Juan Williams, with what happened with Mr. Cosby this week, I can't help but ask, what is your reaction to the allegations, the trial, the conviction, and now the sentencing of Bill Cosby, three to ten years in prison? You know, so I know Bill Cosby. He cooperated with me when I did that book, which was based on what he called at the time his pound cake speech, where he said, you know, uh, if a young kid is in some corner store and stealing pound cake, why shouldn't the police arrest him? What, what, why is the kid stealing the pound cake in the first place? And he was asking tough questions of the black community uh, on several levels. You know, why aren't we out there protesting against the drug dealers? Why aren't we standing up and saying, hey, these schools need to be better? So he, it was all about kind of taking responsibility. So for me, this week, to hear Bill Cosby designated by the court 
as a sexual predator, a violent sexual predator. It was devastating to me. Mm. On some level, um, it just it's like, you know, somebody you looked up to, somebody who was iconic, sort of being deflated right in front of your eyes as a phony. I mean, there's no getting around that designation. So you had mentioned, Candace, you know, hey, what about the sentencing and seeing him in the bracelets, you know, and and the handcuffs walking down. I mean, that's harmful. But I just thought, boy, that designation doesn't leave any doubt what we're dealing with here in the eyes of the court uh, based on the victim statements and the like. He was doing real damage to people. But again, you know, for the little guy in me who, you know, I'm I'm 64 years old, so I remember I Spy. That's how old I am. <laughs> I remember when he was an I Spy, and what a cultural moment it was for us as black people to have a star of that magnitude, uh, Bill Cosby, in a co-equal role. I mean, he wasn't playing, you know, Robin to Batman, uh, or you know, he was one of the lead characters. And to now see how it's come all, you know, 50 years later, this is how it ends. We can't seem to escape the news each and every day, nor do many of us want to. And I'm sure you have some thoughts on the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the United States Supreme Court. By the time our listeners are hearing this, the hearing will have happened and perhaps likely the Senate will have taken its vote. Considering what we've just discussed with Mr. Cosby what you know about and have thoughts of about the Me Too movement. Where are you on the Senate's rush to confirm Mr. Kavanaugh when some argue that the seat was held open for more than a year because the Senate would not allow Merrick Garland's nomination to even be entertained? So I think this is a huge inconsistency. I think what you're seeing here is sort of bully power politics in which the Republicans, and remember you've got 11 men there, and they're worried about the optics of that in terms of questioning Professor Ford, who has made these allegations against Judge Kavanaugh. It seems to me that we're in a moment where they just want to confirm someone so they can have a hard right majority on the court for decades to come. And you may have seen articles talking about how evangelical voters, and what to me is tremendously ironic, given that they say they are values people, um, saying, you know what, we, we're going to punish Republicans unless you force a vote on Kavanaugh and get us the second conservative judge on the court in the aftermath of having withheld the seat from a properly duly elected president, President Obama, twice elected, uh, and had a year, a year in which he could have nominated and had a confirmed seat, and they denied it. And now they're trying to rush this seat, in my opinion, uh, because it's all about power plays. One last thought on this is that it's, again, upsetting to me that the court and its integrity, its credibility, is suffering in light of the idea that it's now seen as totally partisan, just like the White House or the Congress is seen as partisan. Uh, suddenly now it's that if your case goes to the Supreme Court, you just anticipate, well, there are five conservative votes and four liberal votes. It's not that I'm going before a blindfolded hand of justice that's going to consider the issues. It's that there are preconceived outcomes that you have to overcome. And I just think this is not good for America, not good for our institutions. I think it's what the Russians want. They want to break us apart and they want to diminish trust in American institutions. With the midterms now little more than six weeks away and with the current debate on 
Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. Should he be confirmed and installed on the court before the midterms, which is what the Senate wants? And should it appear that the Senate, even though they have hired a female prosecutor from Arizona to ask the questions to avoid the optics that you described, what message does that send to that sliver of independent, influenceable female voters across the country? This is the political trick at play. The Republicans are in a box. 11 men, 11 white men on the Judiciary Committee. Go back to Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas. It was the same kind of image, and it did not help them, and it came across, as I think, as insensitive at points. By the way, that also impacted someone that we may be talking about in the 2020 election, Joe Biden, who was then, as a senator, chairman of the Judiciary Committee. So the Democrats gave 11 votes to Thomas. I don't think you're going to see that in the Kavanaugh case. I don't think he's going to get any Democratic votes. That People are talking about, well, there's some Democrats in red states, but in light of all these allegations of sexual misbehavior, sexual improprieties, uh, I think that those Democrats are now covered in terms of being able to cast a no vote for Kavanaugh. I'd be surprised. The real issue becomes what happens with two women who are Republicans, in particular Susan Collins, the senator from Maine, Lisa Murkowski, the senator from Alaska. And here again, it becomes a matter of what are they willing to hear, what are they willing to say? Because there is this push to just get it done so that Republicans can say to their voters in the midterms, we have given you a conservative court, very conservative court, for generations to come. Is Roe versus Wade safe if Kavanaugh is confirmed? I don't think so. And, you know, to me, it's ironic that Kavanaugh says, well, I can't tell you what I think, but I can say that I consider it to be a matter of settled law. Well, we know that. Uh, the last nominee also said he believed in settled law and within months was reversing longstanding labor law in the country, 40 years. So I think you have to say that, you know, with these five votes, with people on the court on the conservative side who have already indicated they would undo Roe v. Wade, that it was wrongly decided, you'd have to say that that is a legitimate concern. The problem with our politics is rather than saying this is all about abortion, we get into the fights about other disqualifying issues. And in Brett Kavanaugh's case, it may be uh, sexual misbehavior. Now to your book, What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Sounds like you pulled that from the president's, I guess, candidate Trump's speech to an African-American audience. I think it was in Detroit. No, outside in Dimondale, Michigan. Okay, I knew it was in Michigan. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, President Trump has continued to use it. Just recently, he used it in reference to Indian Americans, not uh, like Native Americans, uh, and asking why aren't they supporting him? What the hell do they have to lose? This is his framework. And again, to me, so condescending, so insulting. It's as if you have nothing. And the image he was creating, by the way, people say to me, well, he was speaking to black people and saying, you know, you have bad neighborhoods, bad schools, no jobs. So why are you supporting Democrats? Democrats have not delivered for black people. You should be supporting not Hillary Clinton. You should be supporting me. And again, you have to think about this. He's not speaking to black people. He wasn't speaking in Detroit. He's not even, I think, sending a message to black people. My impression is that he's sending a message to rural whites, especially 
working-class white men who may feel that they have been forgotten or that somebody else is being helped by the government uh, at a cost to them in terms of feeling forgotten. And he's saying to them that, yeah, these people have these terrible neighborhoods and bad schools, and I'm the hero who's going to stand and prevent them and their troubles from spreading into your neighborhoods coming over here. I'm going to stand up for you. To me, this is demonizing people. This is dividing us by race. But this is the way that he went about it. He also does this, and I think times much more loudly, with immigrants, talking about all immigrants as criminals, members of MS-13 and killers, murderers and the like. Right at the start of his campaign, coming down the escalator in Trump Tower, he was talking about Mexicans as rapists and thieves. And then this goes on with NFL players who kneel to protest police brutality during the anthem. Oh, they're SOBs and people who are immigrants who come from countries with people of color in Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America. Oh, they're coming from S-hole countries. So this is the kind of language he uses, which has led 49% of Americans this summer to tell pollsters they believe Trump is a racist. That, by the way, includes 11% of Republicans, which to me is alarming. How can you then... Support President Trump. He has 90% support among Republicans. How can you support somebody when you think they're racist? How is that possible? And why do you think that I'm a snowflake or I'm so sensitive and I shouldn't be paying attention to language coming from the bully pulpit, the president, the White House, that is intended to demean the 13% of the population that's black, the 17% that's Hispanic, the fastest growing 7 or 8% that's Asian? And the immigrants in the country, obviously this is a racial divide that he exploits for his political advantage. And that is your focus in your book. Well, I want to get people behind, all, you know, as I said, sometimes people say, well, yeah, he said something, you know, he called Omarosa a dog. Oh, don't be so sensitive. He's called other people dogs. Remember, he was talking about Lil Marco and low energy Jeb, you know, so why are you so sensitive that he says some something nasty about uh, LeBron James and Don Lemon? You know, that that LeBron James is so dumb, he makes Don Lemon look better and he thinks Don Lemon is dumb, too. You know, OK, so you, you say I'm not being overly sensitive. Forget the language, if you will. Let's look at the policies. Let's look at what he's actually doing. So when it comes to something so important as voting rights, minority voting rights, What's what's he doing? Oh, he had a voter fraud commission. That was what he did right after his election. Put in place people who were going to find voter fraud because he said he would have won the election, the popular vote against Hillary Clinton, if it wasn't for all the voter fraud, for all the people who voted illegally. And here he's talking about people in the black community. He's talking about illegal immigrants. They could find nothing. Eventually, that commission was disbanded. But what isn't disbanded is heavily Republican legislatures who have been trying to limit where polling places are located. I think you guys know about that here in the state of Georgia. We do. You know about cutting back on voting hours. You know about gerrymandering. And so there's no effort now from the federal government or from the courts to try to protect minority political power as a function of minority voting rights. So that goes beyond the rhetoric. That's what I'm talking about. Let's, let's look at the actual policies. For example, one of his favorite responses whenever he's asked about making, let's just be as neutral as we can, racial statements or statements that could incite racial tension in the society. He says, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Black unemployment is the lowest 
it's ever been. It's at a historical low. And he acts as if that should answer all your questions about race. But then you stop and say, wait a second, one, most of this decline took place under President Obama. It's only dropped one point or a little more than one point under President Trump. Secondly, black unemployment remains double white unemployment in the country. And third, there's Trump trying to remove programs that are intended to help black people get into the middle class. And I think the key question for any president, black, white, Obama, Trump, whoever, at this juncture is, are you helping to grow the black middle class in this country? And are you helping the black American political voice to grow? Because those are the two great achievements of the civil rights movement. And in both cases, Trump is not trying to help with the voting rights, as I explained to you earlier. And secondly, I think that he is intent on policies that do not help to grow the black middle class. So what is your message for the president with your book, or if you could get in his face today and, as some might would want, shake some sense into him? You know, I don't think it works that way. I think that he's pretty content with who he is. He's a 72-year-old man. Uh, you know, he grew up in such a era uh, where his father was quite clear about not having blacks live in his properties. The federal government sued them. They had to settle that suit. They had to pay fines. And then, you know, as it goes down the road, he gets involved in controversies. I don't know if you heard about the Central Park Five in New York, a group of young black and Latino men who were charged with having attacked and raped a young white woman. Well, when those people are exonerated... Donald Trump doesn't apologize for having run full-page ads condemning them and calling them animals. No, no, no. He, he still says that he, in fact, is right. And then don't forget that when there was the first black president, he was the one who was behind the birther movement, suggesting that Obama was not an American and had, in fact, somehow been some kind of you know Machiavellian candidate who was put up there uh, for no good reason and wasn't a legitimate president of the United States. This is his history, right? So I think when you look at that, you understand that if you or I are sitting there and trying to talk to him, he, if we are famous people, if we're like celebrities, right, like the Kardashians, oh, well, then, okay, he'll listen. But in terms of saying, oh, well, this is a really smart person. This is a black academic. This is a scholar. This is someone who is long engaged in black political thought or activism. That's not going to impress him. That's not going to change his mind. I think he is locked in, and at this point, unfortunately for us as Americans, not of any one race or the other, but just as Americans, uh, he's locked into a position where antagonizing, polarizing people, uh, dividing people, he thinks wins him support at the polls. That people may say one thing outside of the voting booth, but once they get inside, they'll vote for him. Because they quietly, privately agree with him? Or agree with him or think, you know what, they want that kind of bully boy tactics and uh, they think that he's someone who is looking out for their best interest and they worry that there are people who are taking advantage of the system and it's not them. They're not the ones getting ahead. How come there are all these immigrants in the country? How come black people are doing better than ever? You see, that's the, you know, we were talking about when he made the, uh, the comment, what the hell do you have to lose? Again, I don't think that he understands the progress that has been made in black America over the last 70 years. When I, at the start of this book, I talk about the fact that, you know, not only has there been a black president, there's been a black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
You have Oprah Winfrey on television. You have people like uh, everybody from Ludacris to Michael Jackson. And then in sports, Michael Jordan to, you know. LeBron James. Yeah. Who, again, he thinks is so dumb. Uh, but is opening schools in his community. Correct. But he, so for him, I think for Trump, it's like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to win with my hand. And the two of you on the radio with all your criticism and critiques, that's fine. But I'm, I'm sitting in the White House, not you. So what happens after the midterm? Should the Republicans lose control of the House? Well, then I think we are on the path to even more partisanship. Uh, it's not that we are short on partisanship at the moment. But I think that what you're going to see is that they will ask questions. And Devin Nunes, who's now head of government, uh, in, I think it's uh, the House Intelligence Committee. It is. He does not want to ask questions. His questions don't go at the president, at the Russia connection. His questions go at Robert Mueller and the Mueller probe. His questions go at the Justice Department. His questions go at the FISA court. So if, imagine then that the Democrats are the ones with subpoena powers. I think they're going to start asking questions about the president's actions or inactions. Uh, and that's a whole different kettle of fish because I think Trump then reacts to their questions angrily. And so I think it makes for an even sharper political divide in the society. But the good of it, and I think the reason that voters are likely to give the House to the Democrats is they want to check or oversight of Donald Trump's impulsive behavior and sometimes upsetting uh, behavior. And do you think that the voters may also react to the fact that the president's party has essentially abdicated the that that role as being a check on the third branch of government? Absolutely. That's why that's what I think I think that there are people who have not bought into the whole cult idea of, well, you know, I like Trump, so anything he does is fine, or all I care about is a hard conservative right on the court, a majority there, or all I care about is a tax cut. Remember, I this term, going into the midterms, President Trump and the Republicans had hoped to be able to brag about the tax cut. It has not gained traction with voters, most of whom say they haven't seen much difference in their paychecks. It looks like the large result of that tax cut went to the corporations and the very rich. Uh, and then the second part of that is that they wanted to brag in big time about the economy in general. And the economy is doing well, but again, it's a time of tremendous income inequality in the country. So if you're at the right end of the spectrum and you have a lot of stocks, you're doing fine. In fact, you might be celebrating. That's evidenced in our high level of consumer confidence. But if you're in the middle or working class or poor, you're just being left behind at this moment. And Trump has not helped. What are you wanting readers to take away from your book? What the hell do you have to lose? Trump's war on civil rights, that study of the policy, the, the changes that have actually happened beyond the... The static. Yeah. That's right. I'm so glad that you, you, you put it that way because it is easy for people to say, hey, you know, Juan Williams, you're, you, you're suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. You're just angry at the, you know, so what he said that, uh, you know, uh, that LeBron James is dumb. So what if he said Maxine Waters is low IQ? Uh, that He just talks about people like that. Don't be so sensitive. But, you know, Let's look beyond this at the real policies of this administration. Let's look at how he's doing away with community development block grants. Let's look at how he's doing away with community 
financial development, things that help black people who want to invest and start a business get going. Let's look at what he's doing in terms of education in the country. In specific, putting more barriers in the way of young people of color and poor people who want to go to college. Oh, wait a second. That's so much more serious, so much heavier than his rhetoric, and yet somehow people don't talk about it. It's like that's not as interesting. It's not as sort of popular and scandalous as the latest Trump tweet statement insult or evidence of bad uh, attitude. People somehow get stuck in the static, and I think we need to go a little deeper, and that's why I wrote What the Hell Do You Have to Lose? Trump's War on Civil Rights. The author is Juan Williams. He's been our guest on the show. Mr. Williams, thank you so much. Wow. Time goes quickly. Thank you for having me. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, MyAndalusCondo29, on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.